Hey guys, welcome to Texas 1031. This is Hannah and this is a true crime podcast and I did that out of order and this is the third, fourth, fourth, third, third installment of our Survivor Story series. Um, yeah, that's that I still don't know how to open this fucking podcast. So yeah, I have a uh, Survivor Story for everyone as I promised uh, now that we are on break. Um, before I start, I would like to thank everyone who reached out to us with case suggestions. We cannot wait to research them and talk about them in the upcoming weeks, so keep those coming in if you'd like. Um, this one isn't as Texasy as I'd prefer, but it does have a Texas tie-in to an episode that I will be doing later in Season 2. And I mean, I make the rules, so I figured why not? Uh, some of you may know this story since it does turn out to have a fairly famous twist occur at the end. But yeah, I don't really have much else to say, if I could speak, as usual. Uh, so let's get started. All right. Well, <laughs> Kane's panting in the background, so fuck it, I don't care. Picture it, 1997, it's August, it's summertime, it's Lexington, Kentucky, all right? Chris Mayer and his girlfriend, Holly Pendleton. I don't know if I said the word mayor correctly. M-A-I-R-E, mayor. Yeah, like John Mayer, sure. And Holly Pendleton had been at a typical college party. According to Holly, the party kind of died out. Wasn't very much fun. Not too much, you know, uh, flip cup or whatever, beer pong. I think she used the word dull, actually, to describe it. Uh, so they left. They um, decided to go down to the train tracks that were just a couple blocks away. And they actually went with a couple other friends. The reason for going was that they wanted to see if they could flatten out some quarters as the trains passed. And uh, it was nearing around midnight after the group had been out by the tracks for about an hour or so without actually having any trains pass by. So the people that uh, accompanied them to the train tracks decided to head back. Uh, but Chris and Holly decided to stay behind and talk for a bit longer. The couple decided to get going and head back to town and they began to walk on the railroad tracks where they uh, spot a man appearing from behind an electrical box that he seemed to have just like been hiding behind. So all the more creepy. He was uh, blocking their way from walking any further on the tracks and he pulled out what was most likely an ice pick or a screwdriver as his weapon. I remember way back in the day, I covered the murder of Corianne Cervantes and she was stabbed multiple times with a screwdriver. And that was just so grody to me. And so I just, which one was worse, ice pick or screwdriver? I don't know. I asked around. Evidently, screwdriver is worse. So back to the story, Holly explains that he just uh, immediately went into robbery mode and asked for their money. Their attacker would force them to their knees and begin to search their belongings. They told him that they didn't have much, but they even offered to go to the bank to get him more money or to, you know, have him take their credit cards. Like anything to get him out of their personal space was ideal. Like here, take whatever you need. Goodbye. Holly then said that she became very frightened because she saw that Chris, who, although was very tall and intimidating, he was quite thin and the man attacking them was only about five, six. And she noticed that Chris wasn't fighting back or making any attempt to take control of the situation or to, you know, fend him off in some shape or form, which I can totally, at least as a female, a straight female relate to, you know, I, I'm you you're with the guy that you're dating or you're with the guy that you're married or you're friends with whatever and although it's very stereotypical these guys that you're with are very 
you know, they're viewed as a protector and someone who wants to defend you and obviously themselves. So when you see them complying with someone who could hurt you or them, that's kind of like, well, shit, you know, I guess we aren't going to try and escape this. But you know what? Also, he had a fucking ice pick. So, Chris, I don't blame you. So he proceeds to tie up both Chris and Holly. He uses Holly's belt to tie her hands behind her back. And uh, he was mainly kind of trying to make sure that Chris was under control because Holly said she just kind of followed along. Like he wasn't paying too much attention to her. He was his main focus was on Chris. Uh, She said, you know, there was no way that even though he wasn't paying attention to her, that she was going to try to escape or run away and just leave Chris to deal with this guy. She wanted to stick stand by her man, I guess. Um, She said that once that he had tied up Chris, he dragged him down through this kind of really bumpy, rough, gravelly grass area near the railroad tracks. And she said that she saw, you know, how painful that was for Chris. And so she didn't try, you know, again, to fight the situation. She just crawled along and did the exact same thing. So she wouldn't be chucked down this hill as well. Holly said that at some point she realized that it all hit her and that she kind of noticed this guy's done this before and he knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't scrambling to get his shit together. He had a method and steps that he was taking like he had done this many times prior. She said he kept going back to um, a bag that he had brought with him and getting stuff out of it and reaching into it and searching around for stuff. And she said that she finally heard him reach into the bag and bring out a shirt that he began ripping up and he used the material to tie each of their legs to each other, not to each other's person, but to themselves, um, and gagged them as well. She said that she actually stuck out her tongue so that the gag wouldn't work properly and that she was able to still kind of communicate with him, you know, in bits and pieces. And she said that she asked him, you know, why he was there and, that, you know, why was he doing this? Why them? And he just responded with really crazy stories like he had just broken out of jail and he was <laughs> waiting on his friend to bring him some food and, and stuff like that, which I mean, what else are you supposed to do to pass the time while you wait for food to be delivered? Am I right? Like, obviously, you see some rando people go in for the kill. I'm kidding. God. She said when he would go back to his bag that was up the hill that they had, you know, previously been or Chris had previously been dragged down that she kind of just voluntarily went down. She would try and untie her hands, but he never really left their sides long enough, just a few minutes here and there. So she couldn't really try and break free. And, you know, she tried to strategize with Chris in the time that he was gone. And just, you know, your mind is just running in crazy circles and you don't know what to do. So that must have been terrifying. Unfortunately, one of the times that he did come back to the couple after, you know, supposedly retrieving something from his bag, uh, he brought with him a massive rock, 52 pounds to be exact. He, um, excuse me, Holly explains that it was like a dream and she was just terrified about what might happen to her. So Holly, who is lying right next to Chris, bound and gagged as he is bludgeoned by this massive rock, would hear him gurgling. And so she asked the man to turn Chris's head to the side so he wouldn't choke on his own blood. The man obliged, but turned to her after moving Chris's head and said, don't worry about him. He's gone. She said after seeing him hit Chris, she went into survival mode and honestly didn't even think about the possibility of him raping her until he was climbing on top of her. She began fighting, kicking, screaming as he tried to rape her, but she was silenced when he stabbed her in the neck and said, look how easily I could kill you. I'm assuming it was with the ice pick, but she didn't specify. She went into a state of being numb. 
She couldn't feel the stabbing, the rape, or anything. During the rape, he only removed her pants, and she asked him to put her pants back on so that if she were to die, she wouldn't be found naked. And just like with her request with him tilting Chris's head, he obliged and put her pants back on, which is says something weird to me. I'm not really sure what it says, but it's interesting. She said at that point, she really thought that he was going to let her go. They even exchanged names with each other. She just desperately wanted to make an emotional connection with him and make him see her as a human and that she had family that she wanted to see again. And she even promised she wouldn't tell anyone what happened. She just, she kept crying that she didn't want to die. But at that point, I feel like, you know, if he tells you his name, fake or not, you're kind of fucked. Holly truly believed that she had gotten through to him and earned his trust. Instead of letting her go, though, the man would actually blast her across the face with a piece of wood. She dodged his attempt, so he then proceeded to beat the back of her head in about five times with the same object. The next thing she knew, she was being covered up with branches and grass, and she said in her days that she believed she actually said the words thank you to him because she thought he was leaving her there alive. But unbeknownst to him, he thought that he had killed Holly and what he didn't realize was that she was still conscious and that he had just covered her up with the brush to let her later escape. She said the next memory she had was standing in someone's front yard. She went from lying in a ditch by the railroad to a stranger's home. She said she was covered in blood and she didn't knock or ring a doorbell. She just walked into someone's house. She was assisted by the homeowner and was taken to the University of Kentucky Hospital where she stayed for five days, sadly missing Chris's funeral and wrought with post-traumatic distress. Holly suffered a broken jaw, which left her mouth wired shut for a month, a broken eye socket, and numerous cuts to her face and head on top of her brutal rape. During the interview, which was over 10 years later, she can be seen fighting back streams of tears talking about Chris's death. Holly has since become a spokeswoman and author for people who have experienced rape and domestic violence and even co-founded an advocacy group back in her hometown in Indiana. Holly would be the sole survivor of a serial rapist and murderer named Angel Maturino Resendez, also known as the Railroad Killer. He allegedly has close to 20 victims throughout the country, but several are in Texas. We were asked back in March to cover this killer, and I realized that we unfortunately never did. So we will revisit this man and his crimes in the next few weeks. Thank you for listening to the third installment of our Survivor series. We will uh, be back in a few weeks with more Texas true crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.